This is God's word. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves, just as He is pure. The Word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer as we begin? God of grace, whether we come into this place um, with grief and sorrow or great frustration or doubt or joy and thankfulness, whether we come feeling like we know you or feeling like you are a stranger, the truth is we're all in the same boat and that we are more of a mess than we want anyone to know, and you keep telling us through your story, through the Bible, that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Would you teach us and speak to us now through that truth and that grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Kirby and Linda Lauderdale adopted four children in the 1970s, starting with Thomas, on July 14, 1970. Thomas never looked up his adopted parents still to this day. And that's in contrast to his sister, uh, Jenny, who who did. And it's actually a rather sad story in that it was only when she began to uh, find them and have a relationship with her adopted parents that her life kind of spiraled downhill and it led towards her death in 2006 of a... Um, a a drug overdose, basically, of mixing methadone with antidepressants. In in striking contrast, you have Thomas, the older brother, um, is an early child. His talent at the piano showed, and so his parents got a piano, and he began composing at an early age, and he ends up at Harvard 
um, graduating cum laude in history and literature, starting a band called Pink, Pink Martini, and, um, and composing music in like nine different languages. Traveling the world in October, he's gonna, their band's going to have two shows at, a, at a, um, a renowned venue in Paris. Thomas Lauderdale. And when he comes back to his hometown of Oakland and performs, he likes ending the show by saying, if there's anybody out there who gave birth to a little boy July 14, 1970, come on back, we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> Jokingly, of course. Um, in the New Testament, our relationship with God is frequently talked about as our adoption it's like we're born afresh into a new family. And that's, that's, that's a strong picture about our relationship with God. It actually gives great insight into how we expect that um, with the Christian faith, there's a unique dynamic of change that can happen in your life. Um, and so we're going to look at that in three senses, especially coming out of this passage, but also other places where adoption comes out in the Bible. And so we're looking at how your adoption does three things. Your adoption inspires obedience. Your adoption um, it drives out your fear. And your adoption by God makes you a better sibling. Start with um, your adoption inspires your obedience. What's striking about 1 John chapter 3 is that um, the exuberance and the exclamation that is coming out of this. In our translation, it's a little bit muted. Um, There are exclamation points. But it, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Basically what you have is you have a, a, a teaching portion of this letter by the Apostle John, who was with Jesus, writing to early Christians. And, and you have him suddenly breaking out in exuberance, um, gushing with this concept and saying something that really, if you kind of brought a, across the dynamics, it's, it would say something like, God's love for you is like from another planet. It's strange. It's out of this world. And then, as, as he says that, you know, you are God's, you're now called God's children. You're adopted. As he says that, then he, then he comes around to verse 3, which is where we ended, where he says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves. And that is a, a great insight into the dynamic of change in the Christian faith is that it, the change and the desire even to purify yourself to obey God or something of what God wants for your life comes from having felt and experienced to some degree with, with a, in, a, in a way that you are deeply moved by God's lavish love for you. And then it's like it flows out of that, that being deeply moved, what flows out of that is a kind of obedience. So you can say that your adoption inspires your obedience. But how does, how does that work? Um, this is how the authors of, of the book How People Change, which you can find in the back, this is how they put it. In these verses, 
What, they, what these verses say is that this amazing love of the Father compels us to live for Him. When rightly understood, God's love will propel you towards holiness and growth in grace. The order is essential. I am a new creation, accepted, adopted, and free. Therefore, I want to please God. We do not say, I will try to please God so that I may become a new creation and make myself acceptable and hope that God adopts me. It's the other way around. It's very important. Now, if you want to bring insight to what people in the first century reading this and catching wind of sort of this adoption analogy, what they would have thought, you look at, you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 15, where uh, the Apostle Paul taps into the adoption metaphor. Another place he does is Galatians 4. We won't deal with that, but just, just noting this, in 8 verse, uh, Romans 8, verse 15, he says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit received you received brought your adoption to sonship. And you kind of go, if you know this translation, you go, Sonship? This is, this is a, a translation, the TNIV, which consistently kind of levels out a lot of the gender stuff that's, that's sometimes unnecessarily carried out. So if, it, if, if the text in the Greek is meaning humankind, it says humankind instead of maybe mankind or he or something like that. But here it sticks with sonship. What's going on? Well, it's a clue. In first century Roman culture when this was written... Uh, you'd have in a family the, the pater familias, the head of the family. And, and legally speaking, unless the pater familias had a, an, a male heir, his estate could not get passed on. So if there's no male heir, then what could even happen in some circumstances, like this text is referring to, is this maybe wealthy estate owner could adopt a slave in the household. So you picture you've got somebody working for uh, their master, working off a debt usually, and maybe even the whole family. There's a whole family of slaves working off this debt to the estate owner. And they're kind of a nobody and they're owned and they have nothing. In fact, they have this huge debt on the, over their head. What, happened, what would happen would be the patrofamilias would walk into the court and suddenly the legal stamp of approval would go, this contract would be signed, and it would be like this. Now this person's debt is canceled. This was adoption, first century. They didn't have kind of the, the thing we're familiar with. It's a lot more fuzzy and cozy today. But this was a much, much more of a contract, a legal thing. So the slave, his, his, um, his debt would be completely canceled. His name would be changed. He would now have that family name permanently, legally. And now all the inheritance was legally set to fall towards him and his family. I mean, you have these writers trying to get across the love of God in the first century and they see this cultural thing going on and they're like, that's it. You want to know what it's like with God? Get this. It would be like if you were a slave working off your debt. And boom, it's done. New name. Inheritance. No debt. The, the only legitimate, the only response that you can even imagine coming out of this is that really that, first of all, you would then, if you were that slave, you would wear your name proudly. There would be a sense of indebtedness to the master who has now elevated you. 
And there would be a strong desire, it seems, that you would want to know kind of how to carry on this family ethos, this mojo that blessed you so much and you'd be looking for a way to... How can maybe others even kind of get in on the action? This is incredible. Teach me how to run the family this way. So there you have it. There's the picture of how your adoption inspires your obedience. And if you become a Christian, what, what, what's guaranteed if you're running into, if you're meeting and getting to know the real God and the real Jesus and how his, what his relationship is like with you, if you're, if you're really encountering that, you will, have, you will have glimpses, you will have moments when you feel a little exuberant, a little bit, you know, you feel deeply moved. Maybe it's just a moment, and maybe you'll go back to the thing we all kind of go back to is God owes me and, 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 and this kind of thing. But you'll have moments. You'll have moments, maybe ever so few, where you catch a picture and you're deeply moved and you exclaim, you almost need to gush, you need to exclaim, and you want to, in some part of your life, you want to start rearranging things to go kind of along with the family way that has blessed you. It just kind of flows out. It's, it inspires you. Your adoption inspires your obedience. But also, it drives out your fear. And if you look at this uh, Romans chapter 8 passage, the part where it was just going to go to when we finished that out was, and by him, or by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. So Scott Simon, who's a, a journalist on the radio, he writes this book called We Were Meant for Each Other about his adoption of two baby girls from China. He says this about his first daughter. When they got like when they got to China, it was their first time, and they're in this hotel, and they get the baby, and they bring the baby back to the hotel. The baby's about a year old, and she cries constantly. Every time she looks at them, she just cries. And it's not until she exhausts herself and falls asleep, and he describes how then she wakes up, and she kind of looks and puzzled again, and then just the next morning as soon as she gets up. So a couple of days of this, and then he says this, like on the third day. Elise had grown tired of crying and learned that however goofy and immature we were, the new people who had appeared in her life were easily manipulated into fetching egg custard, Cheerios, ice cream, whatever she wanted. Whatever she wanted. Whatever she wanted whenever she so much as looked at us. And then his wife takes over at one point in the book and says, I remember the first time the girls said mama in the dark. In the dark of night when they were hungry, cold, or frightened, as I made my way to the crib, so touched by that word, after the long and probable wait, I thought, that's it. That's it. She's my baby. I'm her mother. And it will always be so, no matter the complicating factors brought on by our unusual beginnings. Mommy, Dada. You know the, this word Abba? It's, a, it's like a, it's an Aramaic word that they, they use a couple times in the New Testament. Even though it's all written in Greek, they, they choose to, to use that Aramaic word that's like baby talk. You know, just babbling. It's, like, it's, it's one of those easy words for babies to say. And Abba, Father. It's really Daddy. Daddy. Um, Jesus said, Daddy, 
And I think that's why they carry this word across in some of these teachings, because when he was at the Garden of Gethsemane, facing his suffering and facing the, the most terrifying part of his life, even Jesus, the Son of God, goes to the Father and says, Daddy, Abba. That's how he starts out his prayer, as he's facing the most terrifying moment of his life. The Father, Daddy, is not something to be afraid of. He's someone to bring your fears to. And some of us are kicking and screaming still about the scary father, maybe judge. Maybe we're afraid of the judge. Maybe there's fears in your relationship to God, fears of rejection, fears that God's disappointed in you, fears that, that God has this way about him that he's going to get you if you slip up. And there needs to be a transition, really. And that's what John is, and, and Paul are getting at with adoption, You're getting at the idea that it's daddy. Daddy, who loves to bring you egg custard. I mean, that idea of daddy loves that you've turned your eyes. Finally, eye contact. That's what I wanted. Finally, you're praying. Finally, you're looking to me. Yes. Okay. Good. And so um, we have these different daily prayers for Lent. You know, there's a prayer back there. I don't know if there's any left on the pile of prayer cards of this one. It's the prayer for fearing rejection. The, the short prayer goes like this. Powerful judge, I insulate my life from judgment and potential condemnation of others. There is great fear deep in my heart of being judged a failure. When confronted, my radar increases its range and I'm on edge for the next missile of rejection. I buy into the lie that my worth is always undetermined and vulnerable to devaluation. But in Christ, I am your oh-so-loved child, welcomed forever into the protection of your court. I am as valuable to you now as your only son, who you gave for me on the cross. The only way my status is revoked is when I stop living as if it were secure. I look forward to the day of your full embrace when every fear will be driven out of my heart for good. Your adoption drives out fear. Lastly, your adoption makes you a better sibling. In John chapter 3, 1 John 3 verse 10, if you read a little further on, you'd see that John ties this all together with being, uh, living a certain way of love towards those he calls our brothers and sisters. So he says, those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. So there's this idea that your new status flows out and makes you a better sibling. In the time that these adoption metaphors were brought into the Christian faith and talked about, what was very common was that um, defective children or undesired and undesirable children would be brought to the woods and left out. It was, it was very common that a child with a defect or a, in some way undesirable would become this sort of throwaway baby. I read a statistic this week that, that 90% of babies discovered by amniocentesis to, to have Down syndrome, uh, are the pregnancies are terminated, 90%. In some ways, that doesn't feel all that, that different to me. And in, this early, in the early Christian church, as the church began to grow and this culture continued... Christians were the ones, out of the blue, who knew, but they began, it was very common, they began to go out to the woods. And they would bring rejected children 
home. They would, they would take the unwanted children and bring them home. They would become their own. They would adopt them. And in a lot of ways, that, that begins more of what we know today is the history of adoption. And throughout the, er, the centuries of the Christian church, in terms of his, writings about history and what was going on in the church in different places, you would have these kind of times where it's written about it was common in the church for other children, throwaway babies, rejected children, children with defects to be adopted in and taken in by Christians and raised as their own children. It makes perfect sense with this idea of adoption. If we have this sense that our identity, our central relationship that matters, our relationship with God is defined as we have been given a fresh start, a new life. We're, we're surrounded by the love and acceptance and protection of a new home, a new father. That is our existence. That's what matters most in life. And it settles our hearts. And no, there's nothing else really to chase after in life because you have everything you need. It's like a light bulb can go on, and it does start to go on when you experience your adoption by God. The light bulb of looking around and seeing, what do you see? Around you now, everybody's a child of God. Now everybody is someone who God has already secured all the paperwork of adoption for the people around you, the annoying neighbor that everyone else is talking about, or maybe it's at work, and you're going to be the one who sees them as you know. Underneath that tough exterior is a is really a hurting child who doesn't know what God has done to adopt him or her. But I might begin to show that a little bit. Or you feel that way towards all the the orphans in this world. There's 18 and a half or more children in this world that don't have a parent, even one. Or maybe that's, you know, it's just going to make its way out into your life. It, It has to make its way out into your life somewhere, somehow, if you experience your adoption towards the children of God that you passed on your way to church this morning, people who were on, slept outside last night. It makes its way out. It, it makes its way out. It has to, your adoption, you become a better sibling towards all the potential adoptees around you. That's what everybody is. Let me close with this, because Scott Simon is, was writing about his experience of getting their second daughter and seeing his first daughter's reaction as they went to China and picked up their second daughter. He said, But at the moment when Elise saw a child enter her life in tears, the little girl who had once herself been given up reached out with instinctive tenderness. Let us pray. God of grace, I pray that you would inspire and engender a great concentration of instinctive tenderness. Would you, in this community of City Life, even though some of us are so far from from really getting who you are yet, we're in all different places, would you inspire through your spirit a great sense of our adoption? the lavish love that frees us up from so many of the things that we came here this morning chasing, thinking about, running after, worrying about, being afraid of. And that in this community, there would be such a movement of grace and instinctive tenderness towards the world around us. 
that we would act differently towards just